All right, we're going to move through two chapters of Genesis, so we're going to move pretty quick. I only have one, one point that I kind of want to make that's embedded in the rest of these two chapters, which are pretty self-explanatory. So chapter 20, starting in verse 1. Abraham moved on from there into the region of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. For a while he stayed in Gerar, and there Abraham said to his wife Sarah, She's my sister. We've heard that before. Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. But God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said to him, You're as good as dead because of the woman, because of the woman you have taken. She is a married woman. Now Abimelech had not gone near her, so he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation? Did he not say to me, She's my sister? And didn't she also say, He's my brother? I've done this with a clear conscience and clean hands. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know you've done this with a clear conscience, so I have kept you from sinning against me. That's why I did not let you touch her. Now return to the man's wife, for he's a prophet. He will pray for you. You will live. But if you do not return her, you may be sure that you and all who belong to you will die. So Abraham moves. He spent his whole life as a wanderer. God promised him a piece of land, but he said it's going to be 400 years before he gets it. He moves into a new area after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Maybe he didn't want to see a smoldering city. Uh, When he looked out his window, he had massive amount of livestock, it may be he just had to move to find more place for them to eat. But for whatever reason, he winds up in this new territory. Sarah, at this point, is 89. No offense to anyone who has a who is 89 or moving in that direction. You normally don't think of 89-year-olds as runway models. Not certain what drew Abimelech to her. Most likely, Abraham's a very powerful man. He's rich, he's influential, and it's a political alliance. So Abraham, like we saw him do in chapter 12, lies. Tell her that you're, tell everybody that you're my sister. If they know you're my wife, they're going to kill me in order to take you. Abimelech does that, not to be graphic. He doesn't consummate the marriage. We see that. And God has done something to him that has prevented him from doing so. That's what God says. I've kept you from touching her. So somehow, whatever fatal disease he has given to Abimelech has kept him from consummating the marriage. So at this point, Sarah is in his harem but nothing has been consummated yet. God appears to him in a dream with a very strong warning, give her back or you're going to die. Early the next morning, Abimelech summons all of his officials. And when he told them all that had happened, they were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham in and said, what have you done to us? How have I wronged you that you've brought such great guilt upon me and my kingdom? You've done things to me that should never be done. And Abimelech asked Abraham, What was your reason for doing this? That will be the question that we ask moving forward. Abraham replied, I said to myself, There's surely no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she really is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God had me wander from my father's household, I said to her, This is how you can show your love to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, he is my brother. So Abimelech is ticked, obviously, for good reason. He hasn't done anything to Abraham. Abraham has deceived him into this very grave position where God is saying, I'm wiping out everybody, you and your whole household, because of what you've done. So Abimelech, hot, rightfully so, is saying to Abraham, why did you do this? Why would you do this to us? Abraham's response is incredibly weak and self-serving. There's no sense of repentance, no apology. He blames them. Ironically, he says there's no fear of God in this place when he's not living out of any sense of fear of God. Then he goes on the technicality. She is my sister. She was his half 
sister. He knows that's not the question they were asking. It's irrelevant who her dad was. The only thing that matters to Abimelech is, is she married? He knew that. And he still chose to hide behind a half-truth, just FYI, half-truths, whole lies, same thing. So then he, gives, he blames God. God made us wander. And then he gives the um, kind of that manipulative thing with Sarah. If you really love me, then you'll go along with this. He's, hot, he's shooting every bullet in his gun to justify sinful behavior. Abimelech's response in verse 14. Abimelech brought sheep and cattle and male and female slaves and gave them to Abraham. He returned Sarah, his wife, to him, and he said, My land is before you. Live wherever you like. So Abraham has sinned against Abimelech, and this is how Abimelech replies. Gives him sheep, cattle, slaves, gives back Sarah, and gives him access to whatever he wants in the land. To Sarah, he said, I'm giving your brother, um, I bet if they used air quotes in those days, that's, that's happening there. I'm giving your brother a thousand shekels of silver. This is to cover the offense against you before all who are with you. You are completely vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his female slaves, so that they could have children again. For the Lord had kept all the women in Abimelech's house from conceiving because of Abraham's wife, Sarah. So Abraham, just like happened in chapter 12, totally enriched because of his lie. A thousand shekels of silver is a massive amount of money. A slave was sold for 20. So you can do the math on that. It's an incredibly generous offer. All of this restitution is public, which is important for us. Abimelech wanted to make sure, and ultimately God's behind it, he wanted to make sure that everybody knew He's he's protecting Isaac's paternity. He wants to make sure that everybody knows that Isaac is Abraham and Sarah's, not Abimelech and Sarah's. He wants to make sure that everybody knows who the father of Isaac will be. If you remember a couple of weeks ago when David looked at uh, chapter 18, when these angels appear, God says to Abraham and Sarah, I'm coming back in a year, and you're going to have a son then. So this is happening within a year of giving birth to Isaac. Within just a handful of weeks or months, of this incredible time where Abraham eats dinner with God. He goes back so far, lies, but God, in this protective way, even in spite of Abraham's sin, is honoring the commitment that he made to Abraham and Sarah. I'm protecting the paternity of Isaac. Nobody in this whole house is going to get pregnant. Abimelech can't consummate the marriage because of what I've done to him. Everything is, is pure for the sake of protecting the paternity of Isaac. Chapter 21 Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah, and he said, as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time God had promised. Abraham gave the name Isaac to to the son Sarah bore him. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded him. Abraham was a hundred when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I've borne him a son in his old age? At this point, Sarah's 90, Abraham's 100. 25 years they've waited on God to fulfill this promise. Abraham's 75 when God first says to him, go into this land, this is what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to, you're going to be a great nation. And they've been waiting and waiting and waiting. A few stumbles along the way, absolutely, but in general, their track record is one of faithfully waiting, patiently waiting on God to answer this promise, and he finally does when Abraham is 100 and Sarah is 90. That whole idea about laughter, that ties into the name Isaac. We'll talk more about Isaac next week 
when we look at chapter 22. Going down to verse 8. The child grew and was weaned. And on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham had a great feast. So Isaac is probably two or three at this point. Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar the Egyptian had born to Abraham was mocking. And she said to Abraham, get rid of that slave woman and her son. For that woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. That's his son Ishmael. But God said to him, don't be so distressed about the boy and your slave woman. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you because it's through Isaac that your offspring will will be reckoned. I will make the son of the slave into a nation also because he is your offspring. Early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water, gave them to Hagar. He set them on her shoulders and then sent her off with the boy. She went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went off and sat down about a bowshot away, for she thought, I can't watch the boy die. And as she sat there, she began to sob. God heard the boy crying, and the angel called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What's the matter, Hagar? Don't be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. The well was always there. She just didn't see it. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy as he grew up. He lived in the desert and became an archer. While he was living in the desert of Paran, his, mom, his mother got a wife for him from Egypt. So Ishmael's 14 years older than Isaac, so he's 16, 17 years old at the time. Uh, Paul in Galatians 4.29 says Ishmael actually was persecuting Isaac. So that idea of mocked, there's more to it than just making fun. Sarah saw it as a threat. To Isaac, and so she removes the rival from the house, kicks Hagar and kicks Ishmael out. Abraham obviously very distressed because Ishmael is his son by Hagar. God appears to him and says, don't worry. I'm going to protect Isaac. He's the one through whom all of my promises are coming. So again, we have this idea of God protecting his, if I can say, investment in Abraham and in his family, his commitment to continuing this promise, and I'm going to protect Ishmael. Even though This whole thing got out of hand. Ishmael was never part of the plan. I'm going to protect him because he's your son as well. So there's nothing that you need to worry about. Again, this theme that runs through chapter 20 and 21 is one of God's willingness and his ability to protect that which he has invested in, his promises and his people. We'll close out with this. At the time of Bimelech, there's that guy again, and Phil Cole, the commander of his forces, said to Abraham, God is with you in everything you do. Now swear to me here before God that you will not deal falsely with me or my children or my descendants. Show to me in the country where you now reside as a foreigner the same kindness I have shown to you. Then Abraham said, I swear it. So Abraham has dealt deceptively with Abimelech and so he doesn't trust him, and rightfully so. Last time they engaged, Abimelech almost lost his life. So what he's saying, I need to know that you're not going to do this anymore. For me and my descendants after me, we've got to make a deal because I can't trust you some type of a treaty, a pact. And Abraham says, okay. Then Abraham complained to Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servant had seized. But Abimelech said, I don't know who has done this. You didn't tell me, and I heard about it only today. So Abraham brought sheep and cattle and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a treaty. Abraham set apart seven ewe lambs from the flock, and Abimelech asked Abraham, what's the meaning of these seven ewe lambs you've set apart by themselves? Abraham said, accept these seven lambs from my hand as a witness that I dug this well. So the place was called Beersheba because the two men swore an oath there. After the treaty had been made at Beersheba, Abimelech and Philcol, the commander of his forces, returned to the land of the Philistines. 
Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and there he called on the name of the Lord, the eternal God. And Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines for a long time. Abraham, when you think of him and his family, don't think of a family like you're thinking of a family. There's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people who are part of his household. He's massively wealthy, and he's massively powerful. And so that's a threat to this king, Abimelech. Abraham's already dealt deceptively with him, and so he asked to make a treaty, a non-aggression pact, and Abraham says, okay, that's what the sheep and the cattle are about. Then on top of that, after the treaty, Abraham brings these seven lambs to, as, a, as a sign or as evidence that says, that's my well. I dug it. I'm going to give you those, give you these lambs to prove to you that I dug this well. Again, in an arid climate, access to water, control of a well is a big deal. And we see, again, God protecting Abraham. He's protecting him. He's protecting his household in this foreign land. So much so that the king of this foreign land actually seems to fear Abraham much more than Abraham fears him. So, again, we see this idea, God protecting this promise that he's made to Abraham, which will become very important next week when we look at what God asks Abraham to do with his son, Isaac, which looks to move in the opposite direction of protecting him. For this morning, the thing I want us to focus on is that question Abimelech asked when he says, what was your reason for doing this? Very interesting to me when I think about Abraham. At this point, he's been walking with God for 24, almost 25 years. He's had some incredible experiences with God been obedient on almost every turn, but he continues to trip up in the same place. It appears that his normal MO, the normal way he operates, is when he moves into a foreign area, and everything for him is foreign. Remember, he's a wanderer. As he wanders into new territory, his standard operating procedure is to tell people, she's my sister. He lies. That seems to be the way he normally does things. We don't know if he did it more than twice, but the language seems to indicate that that's what he does. He says, it's kind of what I do as I wander around. Very interesting to me that someone who's walked with God as long as Abraham has and has the experiences with God that Abraham does and and is as faithful to God as Abraham is would continue to struggle with the same thing over and over and over again. And so the question for me becomes, well, how do we avoid the trap? Where are the areas of my life, where are the areas in your life where you would say, I continually kind of plow up the same ground. I get tripped up over the same thing over and over again. It's either destructive to me or it's destructive to others. If you want to put a label on it, you could call it habitual sin. Where are the things, where are the, the, the sin areas of my life that I habitually give in to? What are the enemy's go-to areas in me where he knows it's just a matter of time before I'm going to fall? Last week we looked at James, kind of the anatomy of a temptation. Desire, sin, death. James 1, 13 and 14, James says, don't say that when you're tempted that God's doing it. God's not evil. He doesn't tempt anyone to evil. You're tempted by your own, when your own evil desires, you're lured away and enticed by those own evil desires. When those things give full, are full grown, they give birth to sin. Sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. So the key for us is looking back at the desire stage. Oftentimes, we try to uh, step in at temptation. When temptation comes at that point, It's not a done deal, but the ball's rolling down the hill. If you can step in at the desire stage and figure out what is it in my heart that's given temptation a hook, if there is no desire, there is no temptation. We said nobody cheats on their honeymoon. There's no desire there. I have zero temptation to eat creme brulee because it doesn't declare if it's a solid or a liquid. We've talked about that before. (laughs) 
dessert for me is not a temptation, unless it's double-stuffed Oreos or Swedish fish. Nothing else, if that's not on the menu, it's easy for me to say no to dessert. Same thing with you. If you think about the things that are not tempting to you, it's most likely because you don't have any desire in that area. In the areas that are tempting to you, it's because there is some desire there. James is right. If we can deal with the desire piece, what we're doing is removing the handhold so temptation has nothing to grab onto. Not all desires are evil. Some are. David looking at Bathsheba, that's a wicked desire. Nothing good is going to come from someone looking at another man's wife and wanting her. That's wicked from beginning to end. Nothing good can come from that. Most of us know how to deal with wicked desires. Good desires, though, can still provide opportunity for temptation to take root. It's what happened with Abraham and Sarah. Good desire for Sarah. I want to be a mom. It's normal. Be fruitful and multiply. She'd gotten a promise her husband had. You're going to be a mom. She'd waited for 10 years and it wasn't happening. Good desire and then temptation. For whatever reason, there was something in Sarah's heart that caused her to doubt God's willingness or ability to make her a mom. And so she injects Hagar into the equation. Good desire collides with something not good in Sarah's heart results in centuries of problems moving forward between Jews and Arabs. Same thing with Abraham. Good desire, at least neutral. He didn't want to die. I don't know that that's selfish. He wanted to protect his life. And again, at a minimum, that's a neutral desire. But that desire collides with something in his heart that says, I don't trust God to take care of me. I don't trust God to provide or to protect my life. And that leads him to lie. So good desire collides with something in, in your heart that then creates the opportunity for temptation to take root. So if we can deal with whatever those things are in our heart, that when, or, that when those things collide with desire, create a handhold for temptation, we'll go a long way to avoiding sin and living a life of righteousness. So how do we do that? How do we deal with those? How do we deal with our heart on that level? Let me give you one tangent before we get there. This is Genesis 26. I'm not going to read it uh, at length. We'll, we'll get here when we get here. This is Isaac, Abraham's son. So he's in the same land as Abraham. He winds up in the same place, Gerar. Abimelech is the king. Isaac walks in. He's married to Rebekah, who apparently is very attractive. And this is what he says. When the men of that place asked Isaac about his wife, he said, what? She's my sister. Just like his dad. She is my sister. Because he was afraid to say, she is my wife. He thought the men of this place might kill me on account of Rebecca because she's beautiful. Abraham, here's your Father's Day tag in. Abraham didn't deal with the brokenness in his own heart and he passed it on to his kid. Isaac learned this behavior from his dad because Abraham, who was a father of faith, I'm not putting him down at all, but he wasn't perfect. And there was an area of brokenness or woundedness or sinfulness or whatever you want to call it in his heart. And because he didn't deal with it, it got passed on to his son and his son falls into the same sinful trap as him. We don't want to do that. You don't want to pass that on to your biological children or to other people who look to you for influence and encouragement. You're, you don't want, you've got to, we have to deal with those things that are in our heart or they will perpetuate themselves. I was talking to somebody this week, the, Jesus to, uh, describes the kingdom of God like a mustard seed. It's really small. And it can get in places that a, a full-grown tree can't. And then over time it grows. And I wonder if Satan has counterfeited the same. 
And I wonder if the kingdom of darkness sometimes is like a little bitty perverted mustard seed. And it gets in there also. And we don't see it because it's so small. And it begins to set down roots and it begins to grow. And before we know it, if we don't deal with it at that stage when it's young and it's easy to pull out, we've got a full-grown tree of wickedness in our heart. And then we go about trying to figure out, how do I hide this thing? What if people really knew? We've got to be willing to deal with these things in our hearts before they get to the point that it becomes very difficult to do so. So, how do we do that? A couple of things you can't do. Age is not the answer. Abraham's 99. Most of us aren't going to make it to that age. He was 99 years old. He still had this issue in his heart. Age does not equal maturity. It just doesn't. It was a huge revelation for me when I became an adult and realized that just because people are adults doesn't mean they're mature. The only thing age does is reinforce the patterns that you've already uh, that you're already practicing. It deepens your ruts, if you like that. It just gives you more time to do things the same way so those ways become more ingrained in your heart and your mind and your behavior. So we can't say, well, I'll, just, I'll get there. As I get older, fill in the blank. As you get older, you will get older. That's the only guarantee. There's no guarantee that you're going to get better and there's no guarantee that you're going to mature unless you actively engage with God in the process of seeing your heart conform to the image of Jesus. Age doesn't work encounters aren't enough. It's interesting to me. Again, Abraham had dinner with God. Most of us have not experienced that. He had dreams. He had visions. He had these encounters with God that where he seems to be fully awake and God is physically present before him. And he continued to have these heart issues. Spiritual experiences, spiritual giftedness does not necessarily translate to maturity. You can see that. Just read the headlines. Some of the guys that fall the farthest are the people who are the most gifted. We talked a few weeks ago about that whole idea from that book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. Emotional immaturity will trump spiritual maturity every time. We have to be willing to look at our hearts and not say, well, I'm gifted in this area or God works in my life in this way or I hear God in these places. We're masters of compartmentalization and we've got to be willing to deal with each area of our life. Spiritual giftedness, encounters with God, does not guarantee healing in every area of our heart. And the last thing we see from Abraham is even obedience isn't enough. He was obedient. He was faithful to God regularly. His obedience was quick. Again, he's the model for us of faith. When God tells him to do something almost every time we read the next day, Abraham did it. Or Abraham got up that very day and went and did it. Next week when we look at Isaac, God says, I want you to sacrifice your son. He gets up the next day and does it. He doesn't have an obedience problem in almost every area of his life, but in this one area of his heart, there's something got crossed, some wires got crossed, where he doesn't trust God to protect him that opens him up to this temptation to lie, and he gives into it repeatedly. His obedience in all of these areas doesn't translate into maturity or healing or wholeness in this one area. And the same thing is true for us. Obedience doesn't transfer. God wants us to be obedient in each and every area of our life, each and every time. It's not a cumulative score. What he's looking for is in this moment, flesh or spirit. In this moment, obedience or disobedience. In this moment, righteousness or wickedness. In this moment, in this area. That's what he's looking for. They're all standalone. And that's what Abraham, he didn't do that. And we can't assume that because we're obedient, in the majority of our life, that somehow that's going to translate to healing 
in this one place of our heart where we continue to snag. If that was going to be the case, it would have happened by now, wouldn't it? You wouldn't still be struggling in that area because you are obedient in all of these other areas of our life. The only way to deal with your heart is to deal with it directly. You can't come in through the back door. The only way to deal with your heart is to deal with it directly. Let me give you a few things you can do as we close. First thing is you have to know your heart. Jeremiah 17 says our hearts are desperately wicked. Nobody knows them. Lord, The Lord searches our heart. Psalm 139, search me, know my heart, test me, know my anxious thoughts. The reason it's called a blind spot is because you can't see it. If you could see it, it wouldn't be a blind spot. That's why you need somebody to tell you when you have lettuce in your teeth. Physically impossible to see there. We need God to show us our hearts. Often what that looks like. It's, it's this aha moment where he allows you to experience the consequences of that sinfulness or brokenness or whatever label you want to put on it. You think, oh, I sounded just like my mom, and I swore I would never do that. And you realize, whatever that pattern was, you've carried it on. You get caught, and you're embarrassed because you got caught, and you thought, and you realize, look look what happened. Look, what what am I doing? It's those aha moments that God graciously gives to us to allow us to see our heart. Now, in Abraham's defense, the two times that we read about him lying, what happens? He gets rich. Both times. Pharaoh loads him up with stuff, and Abimelech loads him up with stuff. Not exactly reinforcing the lesson that lying is bad when you walk away richer than when you walked in. That's not how it works for us. Thankfully, God allows us to feel the the consequences of our sin. That's why hangovers are hangovers. It's to remind you, hey, don't drink so much next time. This is is what the results are. We need those aha moments where God shows us what's actually going on in our hearts. It can be very uh, risky to ask. It's riskier not to. Some of you, are blessed to have people who love you deeply, who will tell you if you ask. This is where I see you continually tripping up. If there's a ditch for you, this is it. If you have those people, I would encourage you strongly to ask. They won't bash you. They won't because they truly love you and they'll be able to say, I've been, we've been living together. We've been living life together for a long time. And this is, this is the destructive pattern that I see in you. It destroys you or it adversely affects others. This is it. If you have someone like that, that's one of the ways God wants to reveal your heart to you. Once he does, recognize that's a sin. And what do we do with sin? We confess to God. 1 John 1, 9, confess your sin to God. He's faithful and just to forgive you of those sins and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. That's the second thing. Once you recognize, hey, this is where I'm prone, once Abraham sees that, then the next step for him is to confess. So what does that look like? Ultimately, all sin boils down to a lack of trust. So here's my confession. God, I confess that I don't trust you enough to protect my life in these foreign lands. Therefore, I'm lying about Sarah. Sarah says, God, I confess that I don't trust you enough to make me a mom. Therefore, I'm injecting Hagar into this situation. That's what your confession is going to sound like. It's recognizing the place where you don't trust God, which then leads to that sinful behavior. Got to do that. That opens us up to receiving His grace. Next thing, confess to God, then you confess to others. That's first, or James 5, 16. 
Confess your sins to one another so you'll be healed. This is easy. Those first two things can be done privately. This can't. You've got to get somebody else involved. Confessing to other people breaks pride. God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. When you choose to share with somebody else, this is where I'm struggling, what you've done is you said it's more important for me to be healed than it is for me to maintain my reputation with you. My secret is not as important as my wholeness or my maturity. And so in choosing to share, I'm humbling myself and opening myself up to the grace of God. The second thing that does is that allows me to enjoy the strength of the body. There's a guy, every time he goes out of town, he texts me. I'm going to be out of town for these days. And when he comes back, he, he just sends me a quick text, good trip or bad trip. And, we know, and I know what that means, and he knows what that means. And if it's a bad trip, then we get together and we talk about it. Just that little small thing is important for him. It's important for you. It's important for me. It's accountability. It's somebody else is in this with me. Just the fact that he knows that I know kind of remove some of the shame and remove some of the power of sin because he knows. I'm going to ask him what he watched on TV in the hotel. I'm going to ask him. And he's going to have to tell me. And it provides a layer of accountability on one side and a layer of encouragement and protection on the other. You don't have to tell everybody everything. But there has to be somebody who does know you fully and knows the areas where you're struggling or you're isolating yourself, cutting yourself off from the body, which is one of the main ways God wants to encourage you. I would also say, fourth, learn to walk in the Spirit in every area of your life. Galatians says, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Desire is where we started, and it's where we're ending. You can't fight your flesh with your flesh. You fight your flesh with the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a resource God has given to us to empower us to obey and live a life of righteousness. Many of us, we see the wickedness in our own heart, we recognize the places where we're going to fall, and we proceed to try to tackle those things in our own strength, with our own willpower. We put up a whole bunch of fences and guardrails and processes to hold ourselves accountable. None of those things are dealing with our hearts, and only the Holy Spirit can do that. And thankfully, God has given him to us. And it's important for me and it's important for you to recognize I need to be led in every area of my life. I need to be led by the Spirit as a husband, as a father, as a boss, as a pastor, as a friend. In every area of my life, I need to say, God, I need your grace. I might not, I'm going to wreck the car in one of these areas. I need your grace in every one of them. I need you to lead me by your Spirit or I'm going to mess up. I'm going to train wreck as a husband or as a father or as a boss or as a pastor or as a friend in some area of my life if I'm not constantly and regularly saying, God, lead me by your Spirit, I'm going to run into a tree. It's not just this blanket, lead me by your Spirit. It's in these areas of my life. I don't know how you uh, conceive of your time. If you think in terms of roles, some of you are calendar people and you have everything broken out, my encouragement to you, however you kind of break down your day, Ask God, lead me. If you're an event person, your calendar is broken down, God, lead me in this breakfast. Lead me in this meeting. Lead me in this phone call. Lead me in this, whatever it is that you're doing. Ask him to lead you in those things. Again, if you think more in terms of your roles, God, lead me as a mom. Lead me as a wife. Lead me as a student. Lead me as an employee. Whatever it is that you are, ask him and begin to do that regularly and see what happens. 
I'm confident that you'll begin to see some shifts and some changes. Last, guard your heart. Proverbs, it's the wellspring of life. What comes in eventually goes out. Your heart is not, when I say heart, and when you read heart in the Bible, don't think feelings. The heart is the most important part of you. It's the core of your personality. It's the center of your being. It's where your mind and your will and your emotions come together. There's a mental, an emotional, and a volitional component. All of those things make up your heart. And what, who you are, your behavior, comes out of that core. And so what the writer of Proverbs, Solomon, says is be careful what you let in there. It's a spring. Don't let the water get polluted. When we first got married, we used to rent movies. You couldn't do it on the TV. You actually had to go somewhere and rent a movie. And we would walk down and she would say, no, 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 no. Those are all the good ones. Every, you just said no to all of them. We're left with Benny and June. That's the only thing we can watch. And she, and that's, I watched a lot of romantic comedies. What she would say, I can't watch that stuff. It's too violent. The language is too bad. I can't watch anything with a kid getting kidnapped. That was before we even had kids. It was bad for her. So guarding her heart said no to everything good in the movie section. Because those things would have gotten into her and they would have come out. Now, I watched a lot of romantic comedies. None of that stuff got into me, as you can tell by my emotional intelligence. But there's there's a truth there. There's a truth there. You want to guard what goes in because it's ultimately going to come out. Many of us are careless with our hearts. We just, they're, they're wide open. And we let, whether it's kind of culture or it's people, experiences, whatever, we let all kinds of junk download into our hearts. And there's just no reason for it. We're careless with this very precious thing out of which we live. And just wisdom says, guard it you'll cut off a whole lot of problems down the road if you'll keep that stuff from getting in there on the front end. So that's kind of what this looks like. It's 12.30, so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to pray. Bo's going to come back up. We're going to have ministry, but I'm also going to let you go. Some of you need to get your kids. Some of you are just tired of sitting here. So we're going to let you go. I'm going to ask you to go quietly. If you're leaving, don't talk until you get outside because we're going to have ministry up here and we don't want to be disrespectful to the people who are coming forward prayer. So ministry teams, you guys can come up. Everybody can stand. And I'm going to close us in prayer. And if you want ministry, we want you to come forward. And here's the invitation for you. The area where you are struggling habitually, if you want to see a breakthrough there, then let us pray for you. Whatever that is. If it's something that's personally destructive to you or it's adversely affecting others. Whatever that area is, and we all have them, let us pray with you about that. It's a huge step involving others in the process. God, I thank you that you are a protector. I thank you that we see that in chapter 20 and 21, that you are fully able, even in the midst of our sinfulness, to protect what you've given to us. And God, I thank you that everything doesn't rely on us and our obedience. God, that you are above that. We absolutely have a role to play, but yours is bigger. And God, I thank you for that. And Lord, I pray for each of us that you would convict us, you would show us the areas in our hearts where we're prone to wander. God, show us where, show us the, the low-hanging fruit for the enemy, the places where he knows, hey, this is, they're going to they're gonna trip up. I can lead them into sin in this area of their life. And God, I pray you give us the grace to, to own that, to repent, to bring others into the process, and to be led by your Spirit.
a way of holiness and righteousness in those areas. In Jesus' name, amen.